0: Half of the battle is the follow-through and just making someone understand it it's as if you've built this big beautiful house and the idea is I'm gonna load this house up with my assets and then when I pass away someone else is just gonna get the keys and they can walk right in the door but you left all your stuff out on the driveway so it doesn't work
1: welcome to the Midland money mindset show this is a podcast about the financial money and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show.
2: The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principle. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss.
1: I am Larry Sprung, your host for the Mitlin Money Mindset Show, and founder and wealth advisor of Mitlin Financial. Today's guest, Jordan Lynn, is a partner with Tannenbaum, Helpern, Syracuse, and Hurstritz Trust and Estates Practice Group. Jordan brings an uncompromising commitment to providing each and every client with responsive, efficient, and sophisticated counsel. Jordan has more than 20 years of experience structuring and executing sophisticated gift, estate, and generation-skipping tax planning techniques. He represents clients in preparing their last will and testaments, trust agreements, and advanced directives and guides them through the administration process when the time comes. Jordan is an excellent attorney and someone that I've had the privilege to call a friend for 20-plus years. So I am here with my good friend, Jordan Lynn, who is a partner at Tannenbaum, Helpern, Syracuse, and Hirstrit. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for taking out the time. I want to talk about what is your focus at the firm?
0: Okay, well, my focus throughout my entire career has been estate planning and estate administration. What that means is, dealing with people who are preparing their wills, preparing trusts. And people have very different objectives in doing that. Some people are dealing with estate tax issues. Some people are just trying to provide for a structured and appropriate administration of their estate after they're gone. So just getting those Documents in place. And then the administration of an estate is kind of executing on that estate plan. So after someone has passed away, making sure that their estates are administered in the way that they had intended, carrying out the terms of those trusts, and making sure that the beneficiaries get what they're supposed to get.
1: Right. So this is a topic that I would imagine some people don't like talking about. It's talking about their mortality, their life expectancy, where they want things to go when they're no longer here. I mean, is that a challenge? It's not a lot of fun at parties to talk shop, for sure. But people do
0: have a lot of questions. I think it's an area where there's a lot of misinformation out there or people think that they know things, but they're really just not sure. And maybe because it's a slightly unpleasant topic, They're hesitant to ask those questions. So when you actually get them in a room and they're ready to concentrate on dealing with these important issues, and they know they're important, they know they have to deal with it, it's a good opportunity to educate and clear up any of those misconceptions that they might have.
1: Yeah, I will tell you this from my own personal experience, because we've talked with clients about getting their estate planning in order, and you could see them cringe. I don't (laughs) want to talk about that. It's not a pleasant thing. But I will tell you from my own personal experience, having the estate planning done in place and set up is actually very relieving and relaxing, because it's one less thing that I have to be concerned with. Now, I hope it doesn't come to fruition until way down the road, but it gives me that comfort knowing that if, God forbid, something happens, it's not going to be left up to somebody else that uh, our wishes, mine and my wife's, are going to be followed through on. I say that all the time. This is something that people tend to put on the
0: back burner. It's an adult thing that you you grow up and you deal with your estate planning, but it's not something that people are excited about doing, at least initially. But, you know, once we start to have the conversation, they start to become educated on the options, and they start to realize the negative things that could have occurred if, God forbid, they had passed away before they dealt with these issues. Right. right, That the outcome would have been a mess. Sure. And now we're taking care of this issue. This is one thing that you can cross off that long to-do list that you have to say, okay, you know, I've got those documents in place, and I feel good about what I've put in place. And I know what things might change in my life in the future that would cause me to need to revisit that. It's a big thing that's actually come up lately, where I'm dealing with clients where we have a lot of conversations, and we talk about a lot of different decisions that they need to make, and they're not really sure. Okay, Who really should be the trustee of my children's trust? Who do I feel would, you know, communicate with my kids and make sure that they're taken care of. And they get the kind of a paralysis by analysis. And we end up waiting and waiting and sitting on these documents. And the important point there I always try to make is these documents don't have to be perfect forever. Right. It's a snapshot of the best that you can do right now. It's more important to get those documents in place. We can always fine-tune those things later. So I don't want it to be an overwhelming experience where people feel like they need to make the wisest decision that will last them for the rest of their lives. You make the wisest decision with the information that you have today, right? and you revisit your estate plan every three to five years to make sure it still reflects your intent.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, personally, I've probably updated my own situation three times in the last 15 or 20 years or so, mm-hmm. and we encounter the same thing. People, when we talk to folks, it's almost like they're making this decision that's going to be written in stone, never be able to change again. And we try to impart upon them that, like you said, you make the decision today based upon the facts and circumstances. If things change six months from now. Just because you have the document doesn't mean that it's something that you can't undo or amend or make an adjustment to, and that's a hard thing for people to understand. We try to put in as much flexibility as we can when we're creating an estate plan, even where we
0: we're using these irrevocable trusts, and that term implies it is set in stone. irrevocable, but it's really not. There are some aspects of it that, yeah, you can't change them, or it's very difficult to change them. There are some aspects, like the change of a trustee or things that people would typically want to revisit in the future just to fine tune a plan where there are opportunities to do it. So right. and the rest of the you know the more basic documents those are freely revocable. There's nothing set in stone about them. As I said, it's a snapshot of what you think today. Sure. And as people come in and out of your life and your children grow up and you realize what kind of adults they're going to be for good or for bad, you adjust your estate plan accordingly.
1: Sure. So planning like this, estate planning, your death, etc., for young people seems far down the road. As you get older, it's something that's closer in sight and probably more important and more at the forefront of your decision-making and planning, at what age should people start really thinking about starting estate planning and starting down that process? Is there an age that they should be starting to think about these things?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, a very big decision that people have to make, even if they don't have very much in the way of assets, is dealing with probably their most valuable resource, which is their children. Sure. If you have kids you should have estate planning documents in place, even the most basic foundation of estate planning documents, a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy, a will. I think that's important for everyone to have because if for no other reason, the will allows you to designate who would be the guardian of any minor children if something were to happen to you. So I think it's important to make that decision and also to establish if you're married, how your spouse should be treated, how your spouse should be treated in respect of your children, right? What do you want to do to set up any protections for your children's inheritance on a going forward basis? And obviously, as you start to accrue more assets and your estate gets larger, with more money comes more problems. So there are more decisions to be made. There are more questions to be asked as far as do we have any estate tax issues that we need to be mindful of. Right.
1: I mean, are there go-to documents that everybody needs. I mean, I think you alluded or named a couple yep. of documents just a few moments ago, but when you're at that point, you have children, which is where you're saying you should start thinking about these things from that point forward, what are the staples that you should have at a bare minimum? You've probably heard
0: me say this to clients before because we've worked together. Sure. I look at building an estate plan like you're building a house. So everyone needs a foundation for their house first. The foundation is just kind of that basic set of documents that I think everybody needs. A last will and testament, just to make sure that we were clear on who would be in charge of your estate, who would administer your estate for the benefit of your beneficiaries, and a power of attorney. Very important, because if you become incapacitated, someone needs to be able to step into your shoes and handle your assets on your behalf. Otherwise, you're not able to sign anything. You can't handle your own affairs, and you don't have anyone that's necessarily empowered to do that. If you don't have a power of attorney, your family may end up in guardianship court trying to get a guardianship over you in order to get control over your assets, which is time-consuming and expensive and unpleasant. Much easier to have the document. Have the power of attorney in place. It's a very simple, straightforward document, and we try to make it as broad as we possibly can so that there's sufficient power there to do the things that they'll need to do. And then really on a more basic level, to have a healthcare proxy, just establishing who makes healthcare decisions for you if you can't make those decisions for yourself. You don't want the family arguing, yes, you should give this medication. No, I heard that's bad, don't right. give that medication. We should do this surgery, it's worth the risk. No, it's not worth the risk, let's not do it. You know, Picture a waiting room full of people yelling at your doctor different directives on how to handle your care. The healthcare proxy clarifies that, appoints one person at a time that the doctors and the hospitals can rely upon if you can't communicate your own wishes. And then the last, being really the most personal of all, is a living will that's just basically a statement of your intentions. Think about that Terry Shivo case in Florida many years ago, that if things are really hopeless in a really terrible circumstance, that you're authorizing your healthcare agent to refuse Certain types of treatment. Medical care. Yeah. And that's really the baseline for documents that I think everyone needs.
1: So let's take it even a little bit younger, because as you know, I have a son that's going to be going to college next year. Yeah. I've seen and heard things about, Hey, when your son's going to college or anybody of that age who's going to be 18 years of age when they enter college, it's really key. And you should think about getting a power of attorney for them and a healthcare proxy just in case you need to do anything financially or otherwise for them or make decisions regarding their health. Cause technically, They're 18, they're an adult. They're on their own, although they're at college and we're probably paying for it. They're still on their own. Are those things that should be thought about by parents who have? Absolutely, I get those calls all the time and
0: I'm always happy to tell my clients, have your son or your daughter come see me and we'll sign up a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy. It it won't take more than 15 or 20 minutes, but it's important to have. They may not need a will because they may not have any assets to speak of. They don't have minor children, hopefully, if they're 18. Right.
1: (laughs) They do ask about that on the FAFSA, though. Yeah, right, 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 right.
0: (laughs) But yeah, I think it's a very simple thing to do, and it's something that should be part of everyone's plan as your child is getting ready to enter college.
1: Yeah. You touched on a little earlier irrevocable, revocable trusts and how that things can be changed, things aren't necessarily written in stone. But with regard to trusts in particular, I think that, and maybe you agree, maybe you don't, that there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think one of the things that I hear people talking about is, oh, you know, I need to set up a trust to help protect or avoid taxes. Right. And in some instances, I guess there is a situation for that. Others, there aren't. Can you talk, do trusts help people avoid taxes? Certain types of trusts can help people avoid taxes. Most often,
0: that misunderstanding that's there is people think that they hear about their friends and their relatives having something called a revocable trust or a living trust. Very, very common estate planning strategy. I use them all the time. Essentially, what that is is a will, but it walks along with you for the rest of your life. It's like a briefcase that you carry with you. And what you do during your lifetime is you load your assets into that trust, and it puts them in this wrapper that enables them to pass to the next beneficiary, the next trustee upon your death seamlessly without having to go through that probate process which you hear that word probate and and people shudder right because it's a court proceeding and it takes time and it costs money and sometimes there are family members that want to give you your family a hard time and it gets tied up and it gets litigated so people like to avoid probate and the revocable trust or the living trust is a good answer to that problem but that doesn't in and of itself save anyone on taxes. There is estate tax planning that can be incorporated into a living trust, basically just making sure that you and your spouse are taking advantage of your estate tax exemption, whatever that exemption might be. Right. But when you're talking about, I want to put my assets in a trust and avoid estate taxes, That type of planning is often irrevocable trust planning and usually involves transferring your assets away, making gifts or entering into transactions to divest you of some assets in order to leverage use of your exemption and avoid or reduce estate taxes. But here's the biggest misconception of all. People don't understand where estate taxes come into play. And most of the people that I don't say most of the people, a lot of the people that are concerned about estate taxes don't need to be concerned about estate tax. Because when you and I graduated from college, from Binghamton, right, at the same time, the estate tax exemption was under a million dollars. And even when I graduated from law school and started practicing, it was under a million dollars. Currently, the federal estate tax exemption is almost $12 million. So for right. a married couple, they don't have to start worrying about federal estate taxes until they have almost $24 million in total assets. Right. That exemption could change. Their assets may grow. But that's the neighborhood that we're in right now. Now, that may come down at some point in the future. There are certain signs that point to the fact that it, it may. But we're still talking about serious money. Unless your combined net worth with you and your spouse is in excess of $10 million, estate taxes are probably not a primary driving concern. You probably don't have to worry about estate taxes as long as you have properly structured estate planning documents, just kind of the baseline documents.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think people are still kind of, even though the estate tax exemption is up around that 11 or $12 million mark, they're still in that old school mentality yeah. of thinking things are under the million-dollar mark, which hasn't been there for a long time, but it was. I mean, this means, and people are shocked, they say,
0: well, I could turn around tomorrow and write my kids a check for $20 million between me and my spouse, and nobody has to pay any taxes on that? No, sure, you don't. Right? People get it confused with that $15,000 per person per year annual exclusion, which is totally different, right. has nothing to do with your lifetime exemption, which I'm talking about. There really is a lot of flexibility out there to shift wealth and make transfers way more than there was 20, say 20 sure. years ago. So there's a lot of opportunity for those high net worth clients to create a dynasty for their children and grandchildren with proper estate planning right but the majority of us out there are not going to be have find our estates encumbered with large estate tax it's really it's really for the wealth
1: right Let's stick along the lines of misconceptions, right? So one of the other misconceptions that we run into, and I think the biggest example of this is telling a story, which is I had a client come in probably 15 plus years ago. They come in and they say, Larry, everything that I own is in a trust. Yeah. And they walk into my office, and we're reviewing the assets, and they put down this huge binder on my (laughs) desk that says XYZ Family Trust. And it gives the whole trust outline, what's supposed to happen with their assets. And then they hand me their account statements. And the account statements are in Mr. and Mrs. Joint Account Brokerage Account. Nothing to do with the trust. Right. No title in the name of the trust. And when I tried to explain to them, well, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, looking at your statement... These assets and these other assets that you have statements for are not owned by the trust. And they look at me and say, wait a minute. Yes, it is. I have this book that says all my assets are in a trust. So one of the misconceptions that I've seen over the years is people get these documents drawn up, a trust, and then they automatically think by default their assets are now part of that trust. Is that true? Not true? Misconception? How do they fix that? You're 100% right. And it's
0: actually one of my pet peeves. I think you know that. There are some attorneys out there. You don't get a
1: big binder at your firm?
0: (laughs) I don't go in for the pleather pleather binder (laughs) with the calligraphy on the front. That obviously doesn't have anything to do with the validity of the document. There are some attorneys out there that basically sell these revocable trusts as a panacea. Right. And because they deliver the client a fancy binder... But half of the battle is the follow through and just making someone understand it's its as if you've built, you know, we're using that house analogy. It's as if you've built this big, beautiful house. And the idea is I'm going to load this house up with my assets. And then when I pass away, someone else is just going to get the keys and they can walk right in the door. But you left all your stuff out on the driveway. Right, right. So it doesn't work. Sure. So once you've got this trust vessel in place, once you've got this wrapper in place, you actually need to go through the process of wrapping your assets up in the trust. So, you know, for a piece of real property, that means preparing deeds to transfer the title to those properties into your trust. For an account that doesn't have a beneficiary designation, it means retitling the account in the name of the trust. And you probably do want to do that because we've probably put provisions in there to protect the assets from creditors and set up certain things for your kids that at certain ages, things will happen. And if you leave the assets out on the driveway and they have a beneficiary designation, they'll pass pursuant to the beneficiary designation, which means, yeah, maybe they'll get to your kids, but now you're giving junior a few million dollars outright via the beneficiary designation when you just finished telling me that we want to build this house That makes sure that Junior doesn't get his hands on a dime because he's terrible with money. So no, move the boxes into the house. So we've got to follow through with your financial advisor to move accounts around. We've got to follow through with the real estate, any closely held stock, bank accounts. There needs to be follow through. And those attorneys, unfortunately, that convince clients, "Eh, maybe it's appropriate. They talk to their clients. They make them understand the value of having a revocable trust in place. Well, that's great. Now they've signed the trust and then they just hand them the pleather binder and say, Have a nice day. And unfortunately, a lot of these people don't realize you've only done half the
1: work. Yeah, you still got got to finish it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the other things that we see talked about in your industry, in your profession, we hear sometimes the terms estate planning, senior planning, Mm -hmm. Medicaid planning, estate planners. Yeah. senior plan. You know, it all gets mixed up together, right? but I believe they're all very different things. What are the inherent differences between estate planning, Medicaid planning, senior planning, yeah. perhaps? First, you need to, I think, understand what is the nature of this person that you're
0: talking to? Are they an attorney? Are they a financial planner? Do they have something to do with Medicaid applications and dealing with Medicaid-related issues, nursing home-related issues? If they're an attorney, there are attorneys out there that will generally call themselves elder law attorneys. I don't consider myself to be an elder law attorney per se because elder law is really, in my mind, typically geared toward Medicaid. So right. you know where you have a client that has some assets and their primary concern is if I need to go into a nursing home, this the costs of this care will diminish my assets to the point where my children don't get an inheritance. And I would like to come up with a plan to divest myself of those assets in order to be able to qualify for Medicaid coverage at some point in the future. I want to basically impoverish myself by transferring my assets to a trust and then waiting out a certain look-back period in order to qualify. So there are attorneys that specialize in that. I can write those trusts, but I'm not going to be involved in the Medicaid application process. There are other strategies that people will incorporate if their primary objective is to impoverish themselves in order to qualify for Medicaid. So the attorneys that do that whole process, I think they generally call themselves elder law attorneys. Right. I consider myself to be a trust and estates lawyer or an estate planning attorney because I'm really geared more toward the general estate planning documents that we talked about, but mostly dealing with higher net worth clients that require some level of estate tax planning. Clients that are concerned about estate taxes affecting their estate and figuring out ways to structure their planning. Clients that have businesses, closely held family businesses, and they're dealing with business succession issues. Real estate families that have these real estate holdings that they're trying to leave to the next generation and they want to get the best tax outcome. That's generally what an estate planning lawyer does. If someone calls themselves an estate planner, I don't necessarily know what they are because they could very well be someone like you, a financial planner, and they're also helping people in terms of their planning right. for their estate Right.
1: So I think what you're saying is the majority of clients that seek out estate planning attorneys like yourself aren't necessarily concerned with or have the even the option to impoverish themselves and go on Medicaid in many instances. I think there's three categories that people fall into. And I, I have this conversation all the time. There are high
0: net worth clients, and there are not everybody is high net worth. High
1: net worth. What do you mean by that? Are you saying that they're in excess of that roughly $24 million in, uh, in estate tax exclusion? Yeah, it's a, I guess it's a term of art more than a term of science.
0: Okay. But yeah, I mean, if we say that, because those are the people that are in need of tax, plan. uh, of tax planning. But what I usually talk to my clients about is there are people who just have a little bit of assets. They have a home, they have a little bank account and some other assets, and they're not that far from being able to qualify for Medicaid. They can put the house in the the trust for the kid's benefit. They can do some things with their other assets and they can qualify for Medicaid if they needed to at some point in the future. And then there are higher net worth, not even as much as you were talking about, people that have a few million dollars, they're probably gonna have a hard time qualifying for Medicaid, but maybe they feel they have enough money where even if they needed to stay in a nursing home for a few years, it's not gonna significantly deplete what they're right. planning to leave for their children. And then there's everyone else in between. Right. So there's the people who can self fund. There's the people who can become Medicaid qualified pretty easily. And then there's everyone else in between that's got some money that they want to protect, but it's not so much that they feel like paying for a nursing home would be a drop in the bucket either. Right. And those people we talk to about long term care insurance. Right. It's not as easy to get as it used to be. It's not as inexpensive as it used to be, but it's still a very useful tool. And it's definitely worth the conversation and looking into because that alleviates that concern that so many people have about the incredible costs that a nursing home can cost.
1: Let's shift for a minute because we talked a lot about individuals so far. And you talked about just a moment ago, business owners, real estate families, things of that nature. What are some things, maybe two or three things that business owners in particular should be concerned with in the estate planning process? Because obviously they have this asset that is more to them than just an asset. It's a business producing income. It's probably something they've been involved with for a long time. What are some... Things that they should be concerned with in particular? Yeah, well, first, succession issues. In a lot of cases, it's a family
0: business. Maybe one or more children are involved or thinking about becoming involved in the family business. And you've got to consider how that's going to work out in the future because in a lot of these families, the value of the family business, although it may not be liquid, although it may not feel like they've got that kind of money, if they were to liquidate the business and sell it to a competitor or allow it to be. Purchased by another company, it might have some very significant value. And so, if that's the primary asset and you only have one child that's actually participating in the business, it's not necessarily a great idea to give the other child, who is a dentist or an attorney, an equal interest in this business that they don't work in. Right. And it's going to create resentment between the kids because one child is putting their blood, sweat, and tears into maintaining and growing this business. And then, you know, brother shows up on the first of the month to pick up his check and he's making as much as as they do, plus he works as a dentist. Have you seen the show Succession? I have seen some of it. I've been told
1: I need to watch the whole
0: thing. (laughs) I think everybody should really... (laughs) But it's apparently right up my alley, right? You should totally watch that show. It's
1: unbelievable. If you own a family business and you're even thinking about Succession...
0: yeah the show will blow your mind. It's Exactly. And I think some of the strategies that I've seen and that I've incorporated over the years are things that people may not have heard of or may not have thought through, but they're ways of avoiding that friction inside the family. Right. So number one is preserving harmony within the family and figuring out a way. Maybe you end up figuring out what the value of half, If you, let's say you have two kids, figuring out what the value of half the business is and buying a life insurance policy so that you can give the business to child A and child B gets... An equal amount of cash so that they don't feel slighted, but child A doesn't have to be partners with an absentee sibling that they're going to resent for the rest of their lives in that family business. The other big issue that I see with family businesses and succession is dealing with the fact that that business is worth so much, it's inflating your estate tax liability, but it's not providing liquidity with which to pay the estate tax. Right. So navigating the idea that I may not feel like I'm worth $50 million, but my business, if I were to sell it, is worth $40 million. And when estate taxes come due on my estate, my family's going to have to pay estate taxes as if i've got 50 million dollars of liquid assets right so where are they going to find that money how are we going to deal with that liquidity problem and that's something that really needs to be planned out well in advance otherwise it creates an issue where do we have to sell the business do we have to uncomfortably leverage the business and take on debt in order to satisfy estate tax? Outside investor. right, Right. Do we have to work out an arrangement with the IRS where we're encumbering the business with this debt year over year because we're having to pay off the estate taxes? So figuring out ways to produce that liquidity, either through life insurance or other means it's something that's it's a smart idea to plan out in advance.
1: Yeah, so business owners have that an extra layer of challenges that even makes it more difficult for them to plan on short notice, even more important for them to start in that process earlier than later for them.
0: But they do, in the plus column, family businesses lend themselves very well to estate planning. A lot of what we do in trying to reduce estate taxes is figuring out ways to reduce the value of the assets in the estate and give them away or transfer them to trust for the benefit of children in a leveraged way. So right. what I mean by that is if you have cash or you have shares of Apple, I know exactly what cash is worth. I know exactly what the Apple stock on is any worth on day. any given day. Right. There's no opportunity to discount that. There's no opportunity to get value off the ledger. If you have a family business and you're going to transfer 30% of of an LLC that owns your family business into a trust for the benefit of your kids, well, there, it's a 30% interest in a closely held business. I don't know how marketable that is, may not have voting control. You're definitely in a minority position. So we're able to discount the value of that. So in other words, if your business is worth 10 million and you're giving away 30%, That 30% may not be worth $3 million for gift and estate tax purposes. We can reduce that value via valuation discounts, and then try to structure a transaction where we're getting more bang for our buck, where we're giving away more value for less gift and estate tax exemption cost. And that's really kind of the paradigm of all of that estate tax planning.
1: Although more complicated, it gives you more flexibility and there's more availability to an accessibility to do planning. It lends itself well to successful
0: estate planning. Whereas if somebody comes to me with $10 million of cash, that's a $10 million. If you put that into a trust, it's a $10 million gift and there's no saying anything else about it really.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, it's been very educational, and this is the Mittlin Money Mindset. So we end every show with every guest and ask them the same question, and we're going to do the same with you today. Okay. What did you do today, Jordan, that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success?
0: I'm going to be really corny here, but for me, you see people, athletes, talk about their why, right? Why do you do what you do? Sure, for Simon me, Cynic. Right. For me, it's family, Right my wife and my kids, that's why I get up in the morning and do what I do and why I work as hard as I do. So just, you know, getting up this morning, driving my kids to school. There you go. Nothing wrong with that. Having that time and doing that with them is a mundane daily thing that you do, but it gets me set off on the right foot that I got to spend a little bit of extra time with my kids and.
1: I'd say that's what brings me joy. Listen, I don't think it's corny at all. I actually am missing it. Now with both my boys in high school up until this year, I drove them both to school every day. It gave me some one-on-one time with each one of them. And now, unfortunately, unfortunately, my older guy drives. So he drives (laughs) them both to school. So I got fired and now I come to the office a little bit earlier. So I appreciate it. And I used to love those times as well. So Jordan, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. For joining us. How will people or how should people find you if they want or need to? Sure. I mean, look, in today's day and age of the internet, it's not
0: that hard. You certainly can find me on LinkedIn, the uh, Tenenbaum Helper and Syracuse and Hirsch Trip website, www.thsh.com. And I think my contact information.
1: It'll all be in the
0: show notes. It'll all be in the show Absolutely. notes. So, uh, you know, anybody has questions or anything I brought up today uh, prompts you to have some follow-up questions, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to try to help.
1: Awesome. It's been a pleasure having you, Jordan, and make it a great day. Thanks again. I want to thank Jordan for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset Show. Jordan has been able to use his expertise to help his clients address the often avoided topic of death in a way that makes them feel comfortable and that their wishes will be followed. This is an extremely important part of the planning process. To learn more about Jordan Lynn and Tannenbaum, Helpern, Syracuse, and Hystrits, be sure to visit their website at THSH.com, and you can find Jordan on all of the social media platforms as well. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset make sure you visit our website at mitlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement.
2: The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly.